Why have you hardened our hearts? Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of November 29th, 2020 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. A troubled world searches for the reasons why trouble has come. Scripture regularly explains why troubles came in the past, are with us in the present, and will be with us in the future. The Rev. Canon Daryl Fenton, on the first Sunday of Advent, says today's scriptures give us answers to the questions of the minute. As we mark our Advent calendars in the countdown for Christmas, prayerfully consider making a year-end gift to Christchurch Jerusalem. The pandemic has decimated Israel's tourism sector, leaving many without work and leaving our usually bustling property quiet and empty. Still, Christchurch continues to minister to locals in need, whether spiritually or physically. To make a donation to the Church Fund or the Mercy Fund, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org slash donate. Once again, ChristChurchJerusalem.org slash donate. Thanks. Now, on to the lectionary readings. We continue our worship now with the public reading and study of His Word for the readings appointed the first Sunday in Advent. And we begin with the prophets. Prophet Isaiah Chapter 64, beginning at verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 80, verses 1 through 3, and verses 17 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, 
You who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. As is our tradition, please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel portion for this evening is taken from the account of the evangelist Mark, the 13th chapter, beginning at the 24th verse. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the, ti- what the, time, when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's unseemly to open the Lord's Word without His help. And so, if you will, please pray with me. Our Father and our King, we come as your children in need of your instruction. We take as given your promise through your Son, Yeshua, that when we gather in his name, even two or three of us, you will send your Holy Spirit among us, and that among your Spirit's great gifts to us is the gift of discernment in your word. And so tonight we ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us, show us the truth of your word, protect any error in the mouth of the speaker, and bring us into closer fellowship with you and 
your Son, our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was uh, certainly the most peculiar job assignment ever. In those days, I was working in business as a consultant, and I'd accepted a contract to turn around a failing snowshoe factory. I don't know how many of you come from places where there's snow, but a snowshoe looks like a tennis racket, but you put it on your feet so you can walk on top of the snow. We lived in Chicago, in America, in those days. This factory was about 500 kilometers away, across what is called Lake Michigan in America, a sea about the size of the Dalmatian Sea. And the only quick way to get there was a two-hour flight in a small two-engine plane that had a propeller, not jet engines. On my first visit, I flew up, rented a car, and showed up at the factory unannounced. It was the middle of the afternoon shift of the work. It was a small, prefabricated metal building, almost like an oversized shed, in the middle of a big field that was empty and barren. There was a driveway made of gravel only, and a yard that carried the filthy remnant of the the cowhides that were cut in strips with which to lace those things that look like tennis rackets but that are snowshoes. I walked into the office. There was a secretary. She sat behind a window that couldn't have seen a cleaning cloth in anything less than three years. I introduced myself. Her reply was cautious and cool. Yes, we knew you were coming, but we hadn't expected you yet. I asked how to get to the factory floor, and she pointed to a door over there, well, to my left, to her right. And I walked through that door into chaos and filth and strewn boxes and parts and no people. I was in the middle of the work shift. But I heard a noise of talking and laughing over there in the corner, so I walked towards the door and looked in on what was supposedly the break room, the place where people went when they were given their breaks from work to drink coffee or smoke or whatever. And there, presiding at a very large table, was the supervisor playing poker with all the boys, or at least ten of the boys, and ten more were watching and laughing, of course, until I walked in the room. They were clearly not ready for my arrival. Uh, They weren't expecting me, and they weren't ready. Within a month or so, the supervisor and half the crew were gone. Um, Today begins the first Sunday in Advent. It's a penitential season, a season in which we consider ourselves and our relationship with the Lord in anticipation of His return, but also in memory of His first coming. The lessons that were assigned to us in the lectionary for today are designed to help us prepare for both those comings of the Lord. 
But this year, you know, for us here at Christchurch, and for those of you who've listened online, it's also the fourth in a series of Sundays about the return of Messiah at the end of this mortal age. That is, when Jesus come back, comes back for the second time. Um, both of our texts deal with our spiritual condition at that time. The prophet and the psalmist, with some great trepidation and almost desperate pleading. Jesus himself is more measured but full of warning. But they all draw a single conclusion. And the single conclusion, I think, could be stated quite straightforwardly in a sentence like this. Violence, chaos, tribulation, and destruction all lie ahead before Jesus recreates a just and loving world for those who are ready. Let me say that again. These texts, in summary, say, violence, chaos, tribulation, and destruction lie ahead before Jesus recreates a just and loving world for those who are ready. As you can see, it's not a particularly cheerful topic tonight, except the news at the end is very good. So let's first look at the prophet, Isaiah. It's uh, chapter 64 is where we, we are, are uh, supposed to be reading. But actually, I think we need to go back to the middle of uh, chapter 63, because in fact, this is a prayer that Isaiah puts in the mouth of the people of Israel at the end in the late 7th century, just before they went into Babylonian captivity. Most of us, I think, online and here know the story of Israel. Uh, they know they know what happened to uh, the people of Israel when they were taken into captivity. They know of the life of the kings that became more and more corrupt and the sins of the people that became greater and greater. Isaiah, a hundred years before, is prophesying the kind of prayer that they will pray. It actually begins in the 15th verse of, uh, of chapter 63 and carries on to the end of chapter 64. So let's go first. This is on page, um, page 733 if you're looking for it in your Bible or if you have it online. You may want to follow. We have to be pretty textual tonight. Uh, the, uh, the prayers start out with a pleading, a kind of accusatory pleading. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, Lord? the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards us. Can you hear the tone in their voice demanding that God hear them and look after them? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. And now listen to how the tone changes, and they begin to turn their, ac their accusation towards God himself. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Why have you hardened our heart from your fear? Now, of course, Isaiah knows well enough 
why the Lord allows hearts to be turned against him and why people no longer are able to stand in awe of him. It's because they've been distracted by their possessions, by their careers, by their insecurities, by any number of things that have become more important to them than the Lord himself. But also we can't miss what these people are saying. We're in a mess, Lord. Our world is coming to an end. There is chaos all around us. And you made us do it. You hardened our hearts. You took away the awe with which we understood you. It seems to me to be almost a message for our times and for the church in our times. And then down to verse 19. We've become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who you never called by your name. So the blame and the accusation continues. But because of their troubles, because of their troubles, they still cry out for help because their troubles have overwhelmed them. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Verse 3. You did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down, the mountain shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits. Now, can you hear what's going on in this text? They've been going through a series of changes and adjustments. Demand and plea. Blaming God. Now pleading for him to show himself to them so that once again they could hold him in awe and their hearts would be softened. Crying out and then saying, you're the God who comes down to those who wait for you. And then the next change on their attitudes. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness who remembers you in your ways. And now finally we get to the nub of the problem, where the chaos comes from and why it exists and why, in fact, the Lord's anger has been turned against them. You indeed are angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. He goes on with those famous words that the Apostle Paul later uses. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and, we have, con and you have consumed us because of our iniquities. And of course, what's happening here is that turn from acceptance of where the problem lies in the sins of God's people and the recognition that the only way back is repentance and acknowledgement of their error and asking him to forgive. Now we see the final, final recognition of what's been happening to them. But now, O oh Lord... You are our Father. 
And it's more than just asking for your forgiveness. We finally have to recognize who you are and who we are. You're the potter. We're the clay. You have established the world and guidelines in Torah, and the words later on of Messiah, that is the good life, the righteous life, the right life we were created to live, and we turned away from you. And now we turn back and say, we are gladly under your authority. You made us, therefore you have the right as our sovereign to direct us, and we turn back to you. Before we go on and turn to the gospel, I think, I think we really have to recognize this, this process. It's almost like the processes of grief. Criticize, then blame, then demand help, and then finally recognize where the real problem lies, that we, in fact, are the sinners. Israel, in fact, was the sinner as far as the prophet was concerned at that point of time. And then repenting and finally submitting to God's perfect authority wherein we can find the life he really designed for us so that we can fully experience his love. You know, I, I can't help but wonder, in these terribly troubled times around us, in a time when everything we hear public is about anger and frustration and things being somebody else's fault, and at really honest moments, even if we don't believe in God, it being God's fault. I wonder sometimes about the church, the church that proclaims itself to be righteous and keeping good doctrine, but then when there's trouble in the world, can't look and say, well, that trouble must have come from somewhere else because I'm okay with that. How about you? When in fact, the answer always has been the people of God the disciples of Jesus are to be leaven and salt in the societies in which they live. The societies in which they live are going sour and evil and hateful. They can't put their trust in princes. They can't put their trust in an economic system. They daren't put their trust in armies. The only place where their trust can be put is in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his Messiah. And if they put it anywhere else, they will cease to be leaven, they will cease to be salt, and the societies in which they live will decay. So I think at least we have to ask ourselves that question, the problems that are around us now due to that reason. And it's with that in mind, I think, particularly that idea of repentance and submission to the Lord that will, uh, is required before the gospel we heard can make real sense. We'll come back to that in a bit. So turn with me, if you will, to uh, Mark 13, verse 24. That's uh, page 997, if you have a church Bible. Uh, Jesus begins this paragraph with which we start um, with this enigmatic statement. But in those days after that tribulation... Well, I'm, I'm inclined to think, what were the people who put this uh, lectionary together thinking we were going to do with that verse? Out of the blue. We really have to go back to the beginning, and we'll do this very quickly because we don't want to run out of time tonight. But if we go back to the beginning of chapter 13, 
there are several things that Jesus says are going to happen. And before we start in, I want to, want to note something. Both the prophets of the Tanakh and Jesus when he's acting and speaking prophetically, it's as though they have on bifocals. That is, what they have to say might apply to what's right in front of us, or it might apply to those things a ways beyond or far beyond us or beyond the prophet in time, and sometimes they're mixed together. So what Isaiah was saying about Israel should not be lost on us now because the truth is an eternal truth. Similarly, what Jesus is about to say to his disciples relates to them and to that time at the end of this mortal age when Messiah returns. So Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 13, is walking out of the temple, off, out of the temple onto the steps. Uh, it's the last week of his life. He's been teaching. And as he leaves, one of his disciples, in a kind of patriotic mode, says, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now think about that for a moment. Who, who built that temple? Was it someone righteous? Was it someone who was a servant of God? No. Who was it? It was Herod. Jesus doesn't bother to join in the patriotism. Instead, he says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, we're in about 33, 35, what we would call BCE, I mean, I mean um, CE, the Common Era, or we used to say AD. We're now 35 years away from when the temple falls at the hands of the Romans and no stone is left upon another. Clearly, Jesus' prophecy is for that moment. But then he goes on. And in fact, they decamp from the temple. They go three or four kilometers over here behind us, behind me, in front of you, to the Mount of Olives. And they sit and have a talk, he and his disciples, on the Mount of Olives. It's the close group, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they say to him privately, tell us when these things will be. It's not a new problem to want to know when the world's going to end, you know. Tell us when these things you prophesied will be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Okay, and then he gives a list of things that will come. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, and finally he says, persecution, and then in verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles, all things that have happened throughout time since he came in this course of mortal life until he returns. But he adds something that could, have been, could not have been immediately before them. Verse 9, but watch for yourselves, for they will deliver you up into councils. And he goes on for the next paragraph talking about all the ways in which his disciples in that period, in that first century, will suffer and die. And then he says, none, none of this will end until every ethnicity has heard about me. So he's talking in the immediate, 
and in the far time, because we know as yet not every ethnicity has heard about the Messiah. And then he goes on to talk about the uh, abomination of desolation and refers to the time when those who are anti-Messiahs will come and talks about a great tribulation that will fall upon the earth, which he qualifies in verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not yet been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened these days, no flesh would be saved except for the elect. Or for the elect's sake, they've been shortened. All right. The point when we get to verse 24 is that Jesus is saying, when all that tribulation has come to pass, here's what you should expect. When you see the abomination of desolation, it won't be the end. When you see the tribulation, it will not be the end. How will you know when the end of the age is coming? He says it's like a fig tree. But when you see the leaves coming out on the branch, then you know that summer is near. I think we should note that when we live in an age of people who believe Messiah will return, but are constantly trying to look for the time as though it's some great mystery. Jesus isn't saying, this and this and this will tell you. He's saying, a time will come when things will be obvious and you will know. In fact, I think the two most important verses in this text are verse 32 and verse 35. But that day, the hour no one knows, not angels, nor son, but only the Father. That day when the end will come and I will return, no one is going to know but the Father. Now I ask you, all the religious people you know who are looking for the end of the age, trying to date it as they have done for centuries, trying to say when the Messiah will return, they're all biblically disobedient. Because Jesus says, nobody's going to know except the Father. Except when the time's coming, then you'll know. So, cool it. Not for you to know. And he adds, but watch therefore, because you don't know the hour when the Master is going to return. If you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that we've done three of Jesus' parables in the book of Matthew. One about the ten virgins, those who are wise and those who are unwise, waiting for the bridegroom to arrive at the great feast. And then it was the parable of the talents. The master goes away, gives money for investment to three different people, ten talents, five, and one. Two go about the master's work and invest it and bring rewards and returns. One hides it in fear because he doesn't trust the master and gives it back to him and receives judgment. Gives it back to him, not expanded. And finally, last week, where we hear of Jesus himself sitting as the judge, judging between among the people of God, the sheep and the goats, 
those who served the poor and those who didn't. And now, once again, he says, the master of the house has gone away. Watch until he returns, or be ready until he returns. Always with the scriptures, we have to ask, even though it happened back then, what does it say to us? What does it say to us now? I think there are three things. The first is a prerequisite that the prophet laid before us. If we have not found ourselves reconciled to God through repentance, and as Christians we understand that repentance is made possible through the death and resurrection and propitiation of Jesus suffering for us on our behalf so our sins can be forgiven fully and forever and cleanly, then we can't even talk about the other two things it can teach us because that's always where we have to start. That's where we step into the kingdom of God. That's where we first become a disciple and begin to learn what it's like to be like our master. But if we have made that choice, and if you haven't, if you're hearing us online, you can write and we'll get in touch with you by email or telephone or WhatsApp, whatever works best. If you're here tonight, of course, and you have this issue, and you haven't actually been reconciled with the Father because you're still blaming him, because you haven't acknowledged yet that you need him, because you haven't been able to submit to his authority, but want to talk it over, Aaron, myself, John, are all available. But if you have, then I think there are just two more things to consider. The first is that being in a right relationship that is reconciled to God isn't necessarily the best relationship. Let me see if I can explain that a bit better. All of us who are disciples and are redeemed by Jesus know that his righteousness has made us righteous before the Father. That's the essential transaction that occurs. But then we begin the life of a disciple who becomes more and more like our perfect master. We come to look more and more like him because we become more holy as he was holy. We become more submitted to his will. And in fact, we experience the joys of living the life the Father intended us to live because we have an example before us. Now, even for those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, and my goodness, I first began to walk with the Lord 64 years ago last spring. So I've walked with him a long time, but it's been an uneven path, sometimes trusting him fully, sometimes being overtaken by my own mortality and fallenness and sin, Sometimes growing in him, but not dealing with all the problems and darknesses in the corners. In old Christian language, that was called a besetting sin. A sin that, that sticks with us. A sin that we ignore. A sin that we don't grow out of. I would submit to you tonight that in order to be ready to meet the Lord, we can never stop growing spiritually. Given that we're fallen and weak until he transforms us at that last day where the temptations of sin no longer afflict us from a fallen world and an enemy of our souls, then we have to focus ourselves, asking for the help of his Holy Spirit, on first one thing and then another till we conquer it and grow in grace as we grow in age. If we're doing that, that's what he asks of us. When he says, be holy as I am holy, it means 
continually becoming more holy until that day we step fully into his presence. And then just one final thing. We're to be about the Father's business. That task we were left with to accomplish, what was it? What were Yeshua's last words to his disciples? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in my name, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit everywhere. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth where all those ethnicities must hear about me before I return. We're not far away, but we don't know how close from when all have heard. Now, for those of you who have lived a long life as a Christian, you'll be saying, you know what, though, I, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You know, the, the Apostle Paul talks about the gift of evangelism, and there are people who indeed have it. I know people who get on airplanes, and uh, immediately someone will start up a conversation with them that turns to talking about Messiah and eternal life. When I used to get on airplanes dressed like this, people would look at me and say, are you a priest? And I'd say, if I was in a bad mood, no, it's Halloween. If I was in a good mood and really listening to the Lord, I would say, yes, I am. Well, you have a question. And occasionally I would get a conversation about people's needs. It might lead to talk about Yeshua. But frankly, I'm not an evangelist. But you know what? The scriptures don't say we all have to be evangelists. To be about the Father's business were to be witnesses. What's a witness? A witness is someone who lives like Jesus and is prepared to speak on his behalf when asked or required or prompted by the Holy Spirit. And all of us have to ask, have we been about that business? I recall one church I preached in a long time ago on a famous text about sharing Jesus with people we care about. And I made a point of saying, you know, we've entered an age where Christians are embarrassed to talk about their Messiah because the age around them has become so secular and corrupt that they're intimidated or afraid. Or else they don't want to offend their friends, even though it may cost them their eternal peace. On the way out, I had a mother and father come to me in tears and say, I guess we better start praying for our children. You see, they had presumed that eternity was not a separation between those who don't know God and those who do, between, as we heard last week, sheep and goats. So my, my second word to us would be, if we know people who don't know him, our obligation is to listen for his burden on our hearts and to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray until they acknowledge the God of heaven and earth the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his, the Messiah, and his Messiah who he sent, so that when that last trumpet sounds and he appears over here on the Mount of Olives, they are ready to meet him and will not, as we've heard twice before, be cast into outer darkness. The place we start is with prayer, and the place we follow is being the kind of disciple who continually grows in the Lord so that we are ready to share about him until he comes. Now, that's all the tough stuff. But here's the good news. In that same chapter, Jesus has one paragraph 
It sounds like it's full of warning, but it's actually full of joy. Listen. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they, that meaning all, will see the Son of Man. Remember that image from David, or Daniel chapter 7? The Son of Man, the Messiah. They'll see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And now listen, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you listen. And then he, Messiah, will send his angels and gather together from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven, his elect. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that great end gathering. I want to have some angel grab me by the scruff of my neck or rip me out of my grave and say, he's calling us all to himself. He's remaking the world in righteousness and love and glory. And I want to be there. And I want him to be able to say to me, son, you've walked with me. You have followed my Messiah. You have tried to be like him. You watched and you were ready. And so I think we need to ask for his help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the end of these passages of prophecy from your, pro your great prophet Isaiah and of your, your son and Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, we ask you for your help in being the kind of disciples we want to be. Or we ask your help if we need to know you and be reconciled to you through him in the first place. Whichever the case is, we want to be with you on that great day when you send him back to gather us up. And so I pray, send your Holy Spirit upon us that we may repent if we need to repent, grow if we need to grow, and that we will be about your business in this fallen world until you ring down the curtain of history and open it to a new dawn and a new day of perfection, justice, righteousness, and love that this we pray that we might be with you on that day in the name of the Messiah who does save us and is our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.